Hello, and welcome back to Common Sense Halakha with Rav Elisha Good morning, Rav. How are you? Hello, Uri. Good morning. Listen, I've got a timely question for you. I went on a vacation last year during Hanukkah because that's when I have time off, and I brought with me a 64-pack of tea lights. Every night, I built a little Hanukkah, with the shamash being two tea lights stacked on top of each other, which meant I needed at least 45, and I wanted to have extra in case anyone I was traveling with wanted to light. Very kind. And that got me thinking. It would be so much easier to just have a little portable electronic Hanukkah to carry around with me instead, or for college dorms, or overly cautious apartment buildings, or planes, or whatever. So, what's wrong with electric lights? Right? Like, it's not like we have to do it like we did in the Beta Mikdash, because we don't use five-and-a-half-foot-tall gold-covered candelabras, nor do we use olive oil. So, light is light. What's wrong with the 21st century LEDs? Are you asking me the difference between something that has changed versus something that is same-same but lightly modified? That depends on what are you talking about. <laughs> okay. Um, let me think of something. Okay, the American flag. Have you heard of it? <laughs> I might prefer the Maryland one, but yes, I have heard of the American flag. Okay. How would you feel about changing the American flag? You mean, so like a picture of uh, Rusty the Clown on a plaid background or something? Sure. Well, I think I'd be pretty against it, given all the violations of Hilfos vexillology. Hilfos what? Vexillology, the study of flags. There are five basic rules a good flag should follow. Perhaps the most important of them is that design should be meaningful. So the American flag is a great flag. 13 original colonies, 13 stripes. 50 stars for 50 states, and who cares about those other territories? Uh-huh. George Washington's family crest had red and white stripes, so does our flag. Red, white, and blue in the same color scheme as Britain. And a, a picture of Krusty the Clown on a plaid background would ruin all of that. Okay. What about a small change? Like changing all the red to green? No, because that would just indicate that you're trying to symbolize something other than the ideals of the United States. But something else small, like adding another white star inside the blue canton for Puerto Rico, the Douglas Commonwealth, or Cascadia, like we've done for every state added to the Union since Betsy Ross stitched 13 stars in a circle, then we're holding on to the meaning and the symbolism in an arguably better way than we would be either by not changing in response to the state addition or by changing anything else in response. Good. And what would your vexology insight mean for Hanukkah? That we can treat things like the lights on the Hanukkah as sacred, as important, as valuable in their current form, without treating them as immutable, unmodifiable. Okay, good. Now, before we return to answering your question about Hanukkah lights, let's look at how the Torah treats the Pesach Moed, Pesach season, as sacred without treating it as immutable. And then we can discuss Chal. Okay. So, when is Pesach? Um, April 5th this year, I think. Jewish calendar, please? Yudalit, 14th of Nisan. Are you sure about that? Yes, ever since the first anniversary of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, uh, B'midbar Perak Tet, chapter 9. And Hashem spoke to Moshe in the wilderness of Sinai in the second year of their exodus from the land of Egypt, in the first month thereof, saying, And B'nai Israel should do the Pesach thing at its appointed season. And 
In the fourteenth day of this month, at evening, you shall do it in its appointed season. According to all the rules of it, and according to all the regulations of it, you shall do it. And Moshe told B'nai Israel to do the Pesach thing. And they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month at evening in the wilderness of Sinai. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moshe, so did B'nai Israel. The 14th of Nisan, not 13, not 15, 14th of Nisan, every year, no matter what a certain drasha Masechet Kedushin might make you think. Yes, it is always on the 14th. But is it always Nisan? Are you talking about Pesach Sheni? Good, yes. And Pesach Sheni will show us how the Torah does not change the Pesach season, but rather treats it, treat it as sacred, but not immutable. Let's take a look from where you were just conveniently reading. The Midbar, Tetz, Vav, Three, Yud, Gimbal, chapters 9, verses 6 through, chapter 9, verses 6 through 13. And there were certain men who were impure by result of a dead body, Tamimate, and they were unable to do the Pesach thing on the appropriate day, and they came before Moshe and before Aharon on that day. The fun word play there, because they can't bring the Pesach sacrifice. They can't makriv, so they makarev, they come close to Moshe and Aharon. <laughs> And those men said to him, We are Tamay men. Why are we kept back and not allowed to make the sacrifice in its appointed season with the rest of B'nai Israel? And Moshe said to them, Stand, and I will hear what God will command you to do. And God spoke to Moshe, saying, Speak to B'nai Israel, saying, If any man will be Tamimet, or be a long journey away, even amongst your non-desert-bound contemporaries, shall still do the Pesach sacrifice. In the second month, on the fourteenth day, in the evening, they will do it, the sacrifice, with matzah and maror, they will eat it. They shall leave none of it to the morning, nor break any bone of it. According to all the rules of the Pesach, they shall keep it. Good one more pasuk. And the man that is pure and is not on the journey and fails to keep the Pesach at its appointed time, then that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he didn't bring the offering of the Lord in its appointed season, that man shall bear his sin. Good. Okay. So we have two Pesach celebrations here. What's the same in both of them? Same day of the month. Eating it at night with matzah and maror, leaving none of it until the morning, not breaking any bones. Um, actually, it says more or less, do the exact same thing you would do with the Korban Pesach and Nisan, just do it in ER. Good. In other words, God originally says there's one day, which makes sense, because we want everybody to celebrate the barley season and Yitzhak Mitzrayim together as a group, as we discussed in the Kitniot podcast. We want one date for everyone to celebrate together. But then there are people who can't celebrate with us because they're Tamemet, meaning on a shot level, 
that they can't celebrate because they are mourning from burying their own dead. Nor can the rest of the crowd celebrate well if those downers are among us. And then these people come to Moshe. And what do they do? They, they, they ask for the impossible. They want to be part of the holiday. But they can't move the holiday just for them. And even if you did move the holiday, you would have the same problem as before. Other people would, would die in the interim. Right. Good. And that's why Moshe had to turn to God. Because this is a hard problem to solve. And it's important enough to not just dismiss as unsolvable. And God says, let's hold on to the day of Pesach as sacred. And yet, without changing the date, also avoid deifying the date. Hold on. Wait. What do you mean without changing the date? There's two options now. Are there? Yeah. If you're out of commission for some reason in Nissan, then you're clear for ER. Yes, but only if you're out of commission. God actually reinforces the main date of Pesach at the same time that God allows this makeup date. You're only allowed to observe Pesach Sheni under two very specific conditions. You were Tamaymet, which is out of your control, or you were traveling and unforeseen circumstances stopped you from arriving on time. If, and only if, you meet these conditions, then you can observe a substitute that's almost perfectly a Pesach. It's on the same day of the month, so same conditions at night, and it's still a barley season celebration. But what happens, meaning it's before the wheat season, but what happens if you go for Pesach Sheni and you're not on that list? The, the rather intense punishment of curry. Which does what? prevents people from just lazily doing the second date, which maintains the sacredness of the first date. Right. And how would you have people celebrate the second date in a way that expresses that it's a makeup date, but not as significant as the original date? By celebrating only the ritual Korban Pesach and not the extra seven days of celebrating with matzah. Very smart. Um, <laughs> Did you just call God very smart? Yes. Just don't tell Rambo. <laughs> okay. So what God therefore says now is that there is a makeup date. Still another full moon barley season celebration. And yet God makes sure that the one national pilgrimage date still remains in full force at the same time. In short, the Torah treats the date of the Pesach holiday celebration as sacred without deifying the date. Hold on. Hold on. What do you mean by deifying a date? What I mean here is that God makes sure that the people as a whole will celebrate the first month of the spring as the sacred time of the Pesach barley holiday without having to be unhealthily obsessed over the date in a black and white, all or nothing, deified way. <clears throat> but, but once again, God makes sure that the makeup date does not simplicity unravel into an alternative date. Rather, God keeps the main date sacred without deifying. Okay. Hold on. I want to make sure I'm understanding this. We have this ritual, which is important, a Pesach sacrifice. And it comes at a certain time of year, and we want everyone to do it together on a certain date. And if we 
deify that ritual, use your language, then we can't make any changes whatsoever. It has to be exactly the same. But that which is sacred, again using your language, is the experience. That can't change. But the day can be messed with. Yeah. Sort of like Christmas in July versus the American-Israeli tradition of shifting Suda Thanksgiving to Friday night. Where the former is functionally a corporate parody of Christmas, offering an entirely different experience. While the latter, for those who don't want to cook or eat two big meals in a row, it is closest makes no difference, the same thing. Just move to the side to make everyone's lives a little bit easier. Exactly. And now you've said the point. Treating something as sacred is to focus on making sure that we hold on to the experience within changed reality. Treating something as deified is to focus on precise reenactment instead of trying to achieve the experience within the, within the new reality. Okay. One more question. What does any of this have to do with using or not using electric Hanukkah for the mitzvah of Hanukkah? Oh, that. Okay. So let's do this step <laughs> by step. First, based on what we've discussed so far, tell me why you would allow using an electric Hanukkah for the mitzvah. Okay. Well, that means trying to figure out what the experience of Hanukkah should be, given electric lights being allowed. Make it about light versus dark, which is how the Gemara presents it in that midrash about Adam Harishon celebrating an eight-day holiday when he noticed that the days which had been getting progressively darker were starting to become lighter again. I think he interprets as God distancing the world from chaos and disorder. Mm -hmm. And that would match with the quote-unquote real miracle of Hanukkah, Allah Alanisim, or Rambam, that God sometimes helps a small group of ragtag farmers defeat a global superpower. If the theme is the shining light of God protecting us from the horrible darkness of the Seleucid Greeks, then who cares what the light source is? Use the headlights on a modern pickup truck for all I care. Okay. Not only that, as Rabbi Sean Ruby pointed out to me, Hanukkah is actually during the nights when there's no moon. So it's even more pitch black in the long cold winter nights than the winter solstice. In any case, that exactly is the Psaq of the Mayim Chaim, of Yosef Mashash. He rules that an electric Hanukkah is perfectly fine, in the Hudar. But let me ask you, is there another miracle that you know that is not mentioned in any ancient Eretzishel source, but Jews have been telling about Hanukkah ever since hmm, the Bavli? Yeah. And from the, the remnants of the jugs, a miracle was done for the Jews when the Maccabees had their Harabayit Biadenu moments. They, they found the one still-sealed small jug of pure oil, which lasted for an entire eight days in the menorah. And why is relating such a miracle, telling such a story important? For celebrating victory over evil enemies and over the forces of darkness? Because it's not just about the victory. It's also about reminding ourselves that God can 
miraculously support our efforts against seemingly impossible odds, and to thus remind ourselves to fight for godly goodness. It's about having that hope, and it's also about reminding ourselves that salvation is miraculous, and not to be haughtily confident in our own resources and abilities. It's about seeing the power and chaos and darkness leave the world, about seeing that little bit of hope flicker, almost lifelike, in the darkness. Yes. And as I hear the inspirational music in the background, read your explanation for me, please, in the words of the Maharaj. Maharaj, Kedushay Gadot, Amasechet Shabbat, Daf, Daf Aleph. Moreno Harav Yehuda Loeb and Metzal of Prague, last half of the 16th century, famous for the Golem legend, in his commentary on Masechet Shabbat on page 21. And if you'll say it's the reason for the Chag, because of the miracle of the lighting, for that they would enact the festival of Hanukkah? But every miracle for which we are obligated to thank and praise is because of the salvation that it brought. And we don't celebrate a miracle that merely enabled a mitzvah. Mm-hmm. And the proof I have for this claim, that Hanukkah is not the lights, is in the Alanisim text. The flame miracle isn't even mentioned at all. And there is to say, meaning the Maharal answers, that the main reason for which they enacted the days of Hanukkah was because they beat the Greeks back. Mm-hmm. Except that the victory did not appear to be miraculous from God, rather than from their own strength and power. And therefore, the miracle of the lights was also done, that all would know that the victory also came miraculously. Okay, so. If the story of the miracle is to remind us of the miracle of the victory, can you tell me what is, in a sense, experientially miraculous about flame? What about flames allows you to also experience God enabling the flames to stay lit for ages? Experientially miraculous about flames. Fire has a certain vitality to it, the way it dances and flickers, the way that you never really get the chance to see everything that could be illuminated from the constant shaking. A flashlight, in contrast, reliably and consistently illuminates a given space. It lasts for hours, providing an unbroken streak of light that puts the power of the sun in the palm of your hand. You feel safe and secure with a flashlight. But a candle, the light is intermittent and weak, and it runs out. It doesn't solve the problem. It makes you hope that you solve it in time. Almost like it's rooting for you. Also, there's the way that it draws you in to look at it and stare unendingly. I'm only slightly anthropomorphizing here, but the vitality of the flame, the dance it does, that definitely all leads to the range of sources that compare flames to the neshama. Good. 
So based on that, would you have the same experience if you were to light with an electric menorah? No, of course not. Okay, now remind me once again, what story would you, as a traditional Jew, draw upon to express that sense of the miraculous as you watch the Hanukkah lights? I would have to refer back to the classic Hanukkah story, the Nespach Hashem, the miracle of lighting the menorah for eight days on one day's worth of oil. Okay, so now, how do you think a Hanukkah should be lit? With candles and proper fire safety protocols. Okay, <laughs> good. Now, let's discuss how we sanctify that experience, but don't deify it. Imagine somebody who lives alone, stuck in a hospital where they're not allowed to light flames. You know, oxygen and flames have an explosive reaction. How would you have them both celebrate Hanukkah and yet not encourage a general abandonment of lighting with flames? I would say switch on the electric Hanukkah without a bracha, maybe even do the singing and have fried foods with a doctor's permission, depending on the reason our hypothetical is in the hospital. Okay. And that way the person is both celebrating Hanukkah while also saying that this isn't the right way. And if we made this a norm, then we would also know among ourselves that anybody who is not in a hospital should remember that lighting electric lights is not fully the same experience. Nice. That is exactly the psaq of Rabbi Yosef, who generally forbids using electric Hanukkah. The sponsor should be Chavadat, section 4, Siman 38. Okay, one cannot fulfill the Hanukkah candle obligation with an electric Hanukkah. And if he doesn't have any an option for lighting other than with an electric menorah, he should light it without a bracha. And if afterwards the opportunity presents itself to light with the proper candle, he should light again with a bracha despite having lit the electric menorah. And that's how you sanctify without the effort. Gotcha. Okay. Wait, now one last question. Remember we discussed that God introduced Karet for those who willingly chose to forgo Pesach Rishon in favor of Pesach Sheni? Yeah. Now, imagine you were a person who was afraid that Jews are celebrating the miracle of modernity and technology to the point of turning Hanukkah into a banal cultural holiday. You're afraid that lighting with electric menorahs is a step towards secularization. Meaning, you're afraid Jews are becoming modern and losing their sense of the possibility of the miraculous. Wait, wait. I may be, okay, a little more accurate. You're a person who worries that celebrating electrically is fundamentally a celebration of the miracle of technology. And celebrating the miracle of technology is a celebration of achievement. But Hanukkah is a celebration of hope and striving when achievement seems impossible. Hanukkah is a celebration of finding miracles and brokenness, even if they then lead to victory and salvation. So if you were such a person, 
And you recall God imposing karet to keep problematic behavior in check. Is there a different answer that you might give regarding a person stuck in a hospital? If I were concerned about Hanukkah becoming a banal holiday, vaguely celebrated shallowly without deep being behind it, then I would insist that the only valid way the holiday can be celebrated is true to the tradition, meeting with real flame. Good. And that's exactly what the Tzitzliezer said. Shush, shoot, Tzitzliezer, Response to Tzitzliezer, 20th section, Siman 45. Although there is no research to light an electric menorah lamp without a bracha, nonetheless, there is room to be wary of a stumbling block. Lest those who see that some rabbis ruled that he should light in this way, meaning with an electric menorah without a bracha, Lomar to then say that the rabbis permitted one to actually fulfill one's Hanukkah obligation fully with an electric light. It makes total sense. Depending on your sagaciously developed preference, you're going to come to a different conclusion. If you prioritize having a mitzvah be done with a clean, bright bulb over an antiquated light source, then you'll have no issue allowing electric Hanukkiyot. And if you prioritize the power of flickering and menorah-esque light to deliver the hopeful message of Hanukkah, then you'll demand that people use a flame, but you'll tolerate the edge case as long as it's visibly clear that it's the Pesach Sheni option. But if you're the Sitz Eliezer, and you prioritize stemming the tide of transforming the inspiring into the banal, then you'll demand that only flame can be used. Good. And now that you've explained the positions, we've seen that the question is not whether by definition, an electric light is or is not a flame. Rather, the question is what ways of lighting will grant us the experiences that we think Hanukkah lighting should provide. In a broader sense, a halachic question involving change cannot be answered by defining a term. Rather, it is answered by asking whether one is achieving the same experience or achieving whatever the goals of the given halakha are. But we had three different takes on which elements of a given mitzvah are the most critical. That's exactly my point. Because the question of applying halakha to change circumstances is about how to approximate the original experience or goals of that halakha, different subcultures of observant Jews will naturally often reach different but valid conclusions on questions of this sort. And that is because they not only have different learned evaluations of reality, but often they face realities which are actually slightly different. Hold on. If the whole deal here is the question of human experience, what does it mean to have a learned evaluation? Oh boy. Great question, and that is a topic which we will have to take up in a future episode. Okay. Thank you, Revelisha, for this episode's Sheer, Hanukkah Sameach, and we're looking forward to the next one. Thank you, Uri. Thank you for listening to this episode of Common Sense Halakha with Revelisha Angelovich. As per usual, a source sheet will be linked in the description for those who want to follow along, and questions can be sent to commonsensehalakha at gmail.com. 
That's C-O-M-M-O-N-S-E-N-S-E-H-A-L-A-K-H-A at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and Chag Chanukah Sameach.